Welcome to Lights, Camera, Author. I'm Jim Juno. Hollywood in the 1920s. The motion picture industry is booming, and Irving Thalberg knows it takes more than guts and gumption to create screen magic that will live forever. He's climbed all the way to the head of production at the newly merged Metro Golden Mire, and he's determined to transform Leo the Lion into an icon of the most successful studio in town. This is Hollywood at its most daring and opulent. The Sunset Strip premieres at Grauman's Chinese Theater. Stars like Clark Gable, Greta Garbo, Gene Harlow, Joan Crawford, and Irving Thalberg is at the center of it all. But what is the cost? Originally from Melbourne, Australia, Martin Turnbull moved to Los Angeles in the mid-1990s, where, after a long stint in the travel industry, he worked as a private tour guide showing both locals and out-of-towners the movie studios, the Beverly Hills mansions, Hollywood Hills vistas, and where all the bodies are buried. He is the author of the new novel, The Heart of the Lion, which takes readers on the story of the man behind Golden Age Hollywood myth-making, Irving Thalberg, the Prince of Tinseltown. Let's join the conversation. Hello, Martin Turnbull. Welcome to the show today. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. Now, your new book is coming out in June. It's called The Heart of the Lion. And now, uh-huh. now this is not, well, okay, let me, let me, I had a hard time categorizing this when I was reading it because it's a novel, which is a work of fiction, but you've done a lot of research uh, into, into events um, it's a story, it's set in Irving Thalberg's Hollywood. Correct. Right, and now, so, but, go ahead. So, so in terms of, of categorizing a novel like this, um, the closest description would be a biographical novel. So you're taking the factual biographical facts of a real person's life and you're presenting them not as a biography, but as a novel. And so what I've done is taken the extraordinarily remarkable facts of Irving Thalberg's life as he was head of production at Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, and I've imagined what that life was like for him personally. So it's, it's, it's biographical in the sense that it covers his actual life from 1925 to 1936, but um, it's my, uh, my imagined, how I imagine his interior life was and, and how he felt and thought about the things that he did, the things he was witnessing, and the things he was putting into motion. Exactly, and and what struck me was that the amount. But in order to do that, you had to do, you had to do an Im- immense amount of research uh, into Irving Thalberg's life. I I did. Um, prior to writing this novel, I wrote a series of novels called the Hollywood Garden of Ola mm-hmm. novels, which were set during um, this period. Uh, those novels range from 1927 to 1959, which are the what I think of the 32 years of the golden years of Hollywood um, studio filmmaking. So I, I already had a fairly detailed timeline of what happened when and where in, in Hollywood in general at all the studios and the various people involved. But for this one, I had to very much focus on what was going on in Irving's life 
and in his immediate um, his immediate professional life and his personal life. So what I did was um, I'm friendly with the great grand niece of Louis B. Mayer. And so I approached her with my idea and I said, um, what books would you, you suggest? And she said, well, I can't, I can't speak of Irving's life, but Louis B. Mayer, the head of MGM, loomed large in Irving's life. So she recommended uh, the best biography of him. And in, and, and in looking for other sources of information, I came across a biography of, of Irving Thalberg that seemed to go um, hand in hand with the, with the Mayer biography. And then I thought, well, his two big relationships was with his boss and with his wife. Unfortunately for me, Irving Thalberg's wife was Norma Shearer, who was the queen of the MGM lot, another um, highly chronicled life. So I got a, a copy of uh, the best biography of her. And I read all of these three biographies. And in doing so, I created a timeline of what happened and when. Because what I quickly saw was these two primary relationships in Irving Thalberg's life, they kind of crisscrossed. Um, his relationship with his boss, Louis B. Mayer, started out fantastic and deteriorated over time, where his, his relationship with Norma Shearer started out very tentative and it, it improved over time. So one relationship was deteriorating while the other one was improving. And so that, that formed the backbone of the, of the story. So by the time I finished all three biographies, I had a pretty good grip on what happened and when, and it was a case of deciding which events were most impactful in Irving Thalberg's life, in his emotional life, in his professional life, in his creative life, his social life. There was a lot that happened. Irving Thalberg was one of those people that packed a lot of living into a short life. So it it was a, a treasure trove of events to choose from, but I, I stuck with the ones that seemed to, seemed to pinpoint key turns in his life or, or interesting developments. And that, you're right, that, that took a lot of time. But once I had figured that out, it was, it was clearer to me who Irving Thalberg was and how to write his life and what I imagined his personal perspective would be. He didn't leave behind an autobiography because he died fairly, very young. Had he lived, he probably would have, and, and I wouldn't have needed to write this novel, but he, he did die okay. young, which was part of his unique story. And it was such a remarkable story that I felt it needed to be told, and so I went ahead and I told it. And you uh, and you discovered, well, I don't want to say discovered it, but you this came to you, you were looking for something to write, and then according to what you wrote in your book, it just came to you just suddenly. I think the term you used was ting, that, that it went off in your brain. Well, the, not quite, yes. There was a ting moment, yeah. But um, uh, somebody that I have regular correspondence with who's a fan of the same sorts of things that I am, um, we correspond a lot on books that we read and movies that we watch and various, often, often old movies. And we were talking about um, a TV series 
called The Last Tycoon, which came out of a, a book that F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote in 1940, or, or didn't quite get around to finishing because he died of a heart attack. Right. He was writing a book called The Last Tycoon, which was um, based on Irving Thalberg. Okay. And, and, you know, 60 years later, they made, decided for some reason to make a TV series out of it. We were talking about the the pros and cons of this TV series, and, and Deborah said to me, you know, somebody should write a book about Irving Thalberg because not enough people know about him, and he had such an extraordinary life. And when I, as soon as I read that, I went, oh, yes, absolutely. Oh, yes. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought this, he did have a, an extraordinary story and it hasn't been told outside of, of um, um, The Last Tycoon and that came out in 1941 or something. I went, yes, that's, that's, that would be a fascinating person to write about and in that moment I was off to the races and I knew what my next project would be and that's when I started the researching period and I kind of didn't stop until the book was finished. One of the things I liked about your book is that, is that it, you like I said, the detail was incredible, but also little things. I mean, that, yes, you did take that. You fully confess that you, yes, you did take some literary license with the book, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, and but the one thing I did like was his car. Uh, you came up with a with a unique <laughs> name for his car. <laughs> uh, I, I I did. Um... For those of you listening, um, a, a very popular, very expensive car at the time was called the Duesenberg, and it's and it's a it was a gorgeous, gorgeous car, and very popular among the the A-listers of Hollywood. And I don't know that Irving Thalberg actually drove a Duesenberg, but suddenly the the nickname Thalberg popped into my head, and I thought, I, I I don't know if they if they drove a Duesenberg. And if they did, they would have called it a Thalberg, but that is just too good not to use. So that was one of the points where I embroidered the truth to, to tell a better story because I, I, when you, when you write a story like this, um, you're not just writing a biography. Biographers must stick to the facts. I'm not writing a biography. I'm writing a biographical novel. So I have a story to tell. Sure. And there is a fine line between um, making up stuff and um, telling a great story. So what I tried to do was to stick to the timeline and stick to the facts. But if two separate incidents happened a month apart, but it made for a better story that I set them at the same time, at the same location, in order to tell a better story, I thought that was, I think that's a, a, a legitimate way to tell the story because you're, Somebody said to me once that if somebody wanted to know the the facts of Irving Thalberg's life, they could look up Wikipedia, right? Or they could read or Mark Vieira's biography. They they they, they look that stuff up. Sure. But what they can't do is get inside someone like Irving Thalberg's skin and experience his life from his perspective. That's what a novel does. So you're as a novelist, your job is to is to take your reader inside the skin of your subject and have them experience what that extraordinary life was like firsthand. And if that means conflating two separate events and putting them at a, at a party at Marion Davies Beach House on Santa Monica Beach, 
then so be it. It wasn't like I made up one event and not the other, or it wasn't like one event happened in 1930 and the other one happened in 1935. I didn't do that. But if I had two events that were close to each other, that I thought the telling of the story could be better if I conflated those two into one party at Marion Davis's beach house, then I, I figured that was okay. Oh, exactly. I mean, and well, you know, and you make you make no bones about it. This is a, this is a novel, and it's set during Irving Thalberg's time. But it's not like you said; it's not a biography of Irving Thalberg or or Norma Norma Shearer or or any of the uh, any of the uh, people involved. But you know, the thing that the thing that really struck me about Irving. Now, though, I got to explain to some people who may not know who Irving Thalberg was. Um, he was was known as the true boy wonder of Hollywood. He uh, he was the head, not the head of MGM, but he was he was in charge of a lot of the movies that were produced by MGM. Um, and he he took it over at age twenty five that position, and he passed away sadly at age thirty six, I believe. Uh, and during that time, during those twelve years. There was movies such as Ben-Hur, the original Ben-Hur, um, Marx Brothers movies, Night at the Races, Day at the, Day at the, uh, no, I'm sorry, Day at, Night at the Opera, Day of the Races, and, and many more that, that are classics now. Um, and like you said, in his short time, he did more for movies than possibly anybody in the history. So, and, and, and he knew everybody. He knew everybody. He was also very, um, very well self-educated because what made Irving Thalberg unique among people operating at his level, and, and really there were very few people operating at his level, but among, the, among his, <clears throat> his compatriots at the time, what made him unique was that he was um, subject to very poor health. Um, he was born a blue baby who nearly died in childbirth. And then as a teenager, he contracted rheumatic fever that further damaged his heart. So he, he was very well aware, acutely aware his whole life that this sort of Damocles was hanging over his head, that he could literally drop dead at any time. But alongside that frail heart was a burning ambition to achieve a lot in his life. And because he spent a lot of his time um, sickly, um, in bed by himself, he read voraciously and he read widely. And so by the time he was appointed head of Universal Studios at the age of 21 and then uh, head of MGM production of MGM at 25, he had probably read more and read more widely than anybody else in Hollywood. So he had an eye for story and an eye for class. And so you put those qualities together with um, huge ambition on top of the knowledge that this may all go away tomorrow. I may drop dead tomorrow. I need to get this done now. He was able to produce 90 movies in his life, many of them classics, and many of them setting the standard for um, production values and for casting and for storytelling, there was really nobody like him. I remember in your book, you you know, you start the book with 
uh, Irving Thalberg on the set of Ben Hur, and right. he's meeting he's meeting uh, Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, and and really th- things are not going well. There's a fog. Uh, there's an accident on right. the uh, on the uh, uh, the chariot yeah. races, and then he suffers a heart attack. Um, or we believe what he believes is a heart attack, but uh-huh. but your interaction with the different characters, though, I mean, he convinces Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, to be extras, which is right. something which is uh, which is almost unheard of for stars of that era. Right. So it sounds like you had a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah go ahead. Oh, so I, I chose to open the book in that that um, with that scene because everything that I describe in that scene did happen. Um, but it was, it was, I felt it showed him at his best because he's dealing with a crucial scene in a crucial movie that isn't going well because the day they went to film the chariot race of Ben-Hur, um, the a fog rolled over the set and didn't budge. So he's dealing with the pressure of that. And they're already $2 million in the hole because they started filming in Italy and that was a disaster. So they brought the whole thing back to Hollywood, started again. And now they're at the biggest scene in the biggest movie of the studio's history and nobody can see anything. So he's got that. He's also got thousands of extras. He's also got the king and queen of Hollywood there. But he's also got the star of his picture, Ramon Navarro, who isn't a charioteer, he isn't a stuntman, and yet he's got to go full belt um, behind a team of four horses in a chariot race that has to look real. So naturally, he's a little bit nervous. And so he has to take a moment out of all this and speak to his star and and to, to encourage his star to put in the performance that he needs to put in so that Irving's cameras can capture what's going to be the centerpiece of what's going to eventually be a $4 million movie. And we're talking 1925 here. So he's got all this and he deals it all with it all so coolly and so calmly. And so um, with such, um, such class, it, it sort of showed Irving at his best, but in the middle of all this, he has a heart incident and keeping in mind I mean, at this point, Irving's 25, so he spent 25 years knowing that a heart attack could kill over, kill, kill him any time. He's in the middle of all this, and he has a heart incident. He doesn't have to tell him whether it's a heart attack or not, but of course, that's what he assumes, which is fair enough. Sure. And he still recovers, and he still gets up and gets on with the job at hand, because he is the one that 2,000 people are looking to, to get this sequence on film. So it sort of showed... Irving at his best and worst and what he's like under pressure because not everybody can handle pressure like that, especially at that age, especially with so much writing on it, um, and yet he does. And so I thought that was a very good way to illustrate the sort of person Irving was and how he stood out among his his um, contemporaries. You know, it's amazing that he he accomplished all this also. He never went to college, did he? Um, no, no, he, he, um, went to Brooklyn, Brooklyn boys high and then his, oh, don't quote me on this. It's something like his mother or his neighbor knew somebody who worked in the New York office of Carl Lemley and somehow got him a job 
like I said, office boy or something. So he basically went from the school into the New York office of Universal Studios, where obviously Carl Lemley recognized his talents and pretty much straight away went zooming up, zooming up that ladder. So no, he wasn't, he wasn't college educated. He was self-educated and probably all the better for it because his, his tastes were very wide ranging. He read everything, the bestsellers to the Greek classics, to Shakespeare, everything. So had he been forced to stick to a, a, um, a university curriculum, um, he wouldn't have been quite so widely read. And, and not only just fiction, but he read psychology and he read history. He read all sorts of things to all sorts of subjects. So he was as 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 well-educated as, in fact, you know what, he was better educated than anybody he was working with, which is a nice contrast to Louis B. Mayer, his boss, the head of MGM, who never made it past um, um, elementary school. Do you have a favorite part of the book? Because I know this, the whole book reads like you had, you had <laughs> fun doing the whole, the whole book. Oh, Do you have a favorite? Oh, I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I've not actually thought about that because it's, it's, fresh off the presses, but the first thing that came to my mind is the, there's a scene, um, again taken from reality, where he's holding a party at his house, his house in Santa Monica. Uh, Irving and Norma built a house on Santa Monica Beach, and they liked to throw dinner parties where they would collect people who wouldn't normally find themselves at the same dinner parties. And they like to sort of throw all sorts of different people together and see see what happened. And in this particular night, um, they had Charles Lawton, they had Gene Harlow, they had Jeanette McDonald, and a whole bunch of others. And it was it's a night when the Grunion were running. And when I came across this story, I didn't know what Grunion were. It turns out there are certain sort of fish that only um, multiply, let's call it multiply, um, during a high tide, when a high tide coincides with the full moon, and when that happens, they swarm the seashore and dig holes in the sand and lay their eggs. And the males come find them, and nature takes its course. But it only happens when a high tide coincides with a full moon. And this particular night, Gene Harlow saw that the Grunion were running, and it's kind of a magical sight because the Grunion have scales that reflect light kind of like little rainbows. And so she, she uh, noticed that this was happening and she um, ran inside and said, the Grunion are running, the Grunion are running. But people were too busy talking movies because Hollywood people only talk movies, especially those people. And, and so she had to really try and grab somebody's attention, anybody's attention. And so I used that um, incident as the basis of a scene where Gene Harlow helps Irving Thalberg get Charles Lawton and um, Clark Gable uh, a little bit more simpatico because they would, had just started filming Mutiny on the Bounty and they weren't getting along very well and, and Irving was very worried about this because That's right, yeah. this, was a very, this, this was a very big movie and it wasn't going well because his stars weren't getting along well. So that's an example of where I conflated a real, real event with, at the time, um, the Bounty was about to start filming and these two, his two big stars weren't getting along very well. So it was a, 
a very Hollywood scene. You're on Santa Monica Beach. You're in California. You've got Charles Lawton, Clark Gable, Gene Harlow, Irving Thalberg, Norma Shearer, and the Grunion are running. And it just, it just, it just seemed, and Grunion, you know, reflect the light just the way movie stars are movie stars because their faces reflect the light beautifully. There's other things like cameramen and, and lighting and makeup, but um, people are photogenic because their faces, for whatever reason, reflect light the way that the camera needs to pick it up. And so the Grunion are reflecting light beautifully among these people whose lives depend on how well their faces reflect light. And it just seemed too good a, an opportunity to not incorporate into the novel. So that particular chapter, I don't think I even needed to rewrite one. That one just sort of flowed out of me. That's fantastic. Yeah, I remember, I remember in the book it tells about how they're laying the eggs and um, they've come, they're coming in to fertilize the eggs, and so to speak. So yeah. to speak. But um, now, Heart of the Lion is your newest one. Now you've had your series of the Garden of Allah, uh, set in uh-huh. set in a uh, was this was Nazimova, where is Nazimova? Alan Nazimova was yeah. She was a silent movie star who fell on on financially hard times, so she turned her a two-and-a-half-acre estate on Sunset Boulevard into a hotel that became one of the centers of Hollywood's um, social life for most of the 27 years it was open. and uh, Sorry, 32 years it was open until it closed in 1959. So it was a 32-year story that followed fairly closely the contours of the history of the golden years of Hollywood. I, I kind of saw it as a microcosm. What happened at the Garden of Allah? Um, happened in Hollywood. So it was a 32-year story that took me nine books to tell. Amazing. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. Well, yeah. I tell you what, now, have you got any more? What's the, now, you've got this one done. I know it's on your mind and everything, but are you working on anything new? I am. I've got a, well, I'm at the very, uh, very beginning stages of an idea that I've got. It isn't it isn't really a story yet. It's more of a what if type situation. And this one um, is set in um, the very early days of World War Two after Pearl Harbor, because, well, of course, everything changed after Pearl Harbor. But of in course, Hollywood, yeah. things changed, partly because um, the war effort needed Hollywood to turn into a propaganda machine. And I mean that in a good way. But also, Hollywood was in California. And right after Pearl Harbor, people were thinking, well, the Japanese got as far as Pearl Harbor. If they continued heading east, what's the next place they hit? It's California. It's California, San Francisco. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So they were very concerned. And as it turned out, with good reason, um, that they were the the next possible target. And so they had to change their way of life very quickly in terms of blackouts and dimouts and rationing and then converting the the factories um, of, of L.A. into, into um, uh, places that uh, – sorry, factories that, that produce you know, aircraft and, and such like. So all that had to be converted. It wasn't overnight, but it was a quick conversion because now that we're in this war, we have to ramp up. And so life changed very quickly from peacetime 
LA to wartime LA. So LA in particular, maybe San Francisco too, but I don't think in quite the same way. Um, Life in LA went through a very rapid transition during that, the year or two after Pearl Harbor. And as a novelist, that says to me, a lot happens in a short amount of time. Let's see if I can, I can grab that atmosphere of what it was like to be at well, effectively ground zero for the war effort, at least in the beginning. And let's see if I can sort of give a, give my readers a feel for what that was like within the context of the Hollywood, um, the Hollywood filmmaking industry. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to it. Maybe can you come on back on the show when that one, when you have that one out? Oh, absolutely. I'd love to. Great. Well, the author's name is Martin Turnbull, and the book is The Heart of the Lion. It is, it is a bi- not a biograph. No, I'm, I'm sorry, not a not a biography, but rather a novel set during the time of Irving Thalberg of MGM. Again, Martin, thank you for yep. being on the show tonight. My pleasure. You can find more information about the book, The Heart of the Lion, at martinturnbull.com. Until next time, for Lights, Camera, Author, I'm Jim Juno.